Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, legal technology, law practice management, law firm leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Crystal Patterson. Crystal is general counsel at Gulfstream Commercial Services at the ABA Rippity Spring Symposium. Crystal was part of a panel that talked about caring for yourself while caring for others, a super important topic. I asked Crystal to participate on the podcast to discuss that topic. Thanks for joining me today, Crystal. Thank you so much for having me, Mary. Well, Crystal, the first thing I would like to ask you is why this topic is so important to you personally. You've been a significant advocate for self-care in the face of a high-intensity career path. So can you share with us? Yes. I can, Mary. Um, so my career actually started in Minneapolis, where I was a commercial and fiduciary litigator at Fredrickson and Byron. So I had all of the pressures of performing as an associate in a large law firm environment. Um, at the time, I was married to someone who was a hospital executive, so he also had a 
very demanding career. And then as we got married and had children, we then added those into the fold of additional uh, responsibilities to try to balance the two careers as well as parenting to our children. Um, for his career, we ended up moving to uh, the outskirts of New York City for a couple of years, and I actually commuted back and kept my partnership at Frederickson during that period of time. And then ultimately, we moved another time to uh, Western Kentucky for his career, and I continued commuting back to Frederickson for a while then. Um, ultimately, I changed jobs and have been at Gulfstream Commercial Services for six years. But the reason I'm relaying this background is really to kind of set the stage for the various different demands that I've had to face and figured out perhaps the hard way that the only way that you can really successfully do all that and stay healthy is to be very mindful about the demands and um, the toll that they can take on you if you don't make time to take care of yourself while caring for others. So let me be clear about that. You were litigating, commuting, and raising kids all at the that's, same time? That's correct. Okay, so then um, you really do have a passion about this. <laughs> I do. And then um, after living in Kentucky for a few years, my uh, then husband and I divorced, and he actually moved to Texas. And so for the last four or five years, I really have been a full-time single parent um, and managing a career as well. And that as a person who's done the single parent path and managed a career can just speak to how challenging that can be. My son is now grown. So I have to tell you that it's that moment that you, you know, a lot of people are that sad empty nesters. I was like, wow, I can actually enjoy my career path now. But you know, the other thing I just wanted to point out to our listeners is when I was just kind of reviewing your background to prepare for this. I love the about section on your LinkedIn profile. And I was going to read that, but I didn't put it in my notes. So I'm just going to say it's worth going and finding Crystal Patterson on LinkedIn and just reading the about section of her profile. It fits sort of the category of being unique. It's not something you're just going to read. Hey, I'm another lawyer. It says something really unique about you. Can you? Thank you so much. Yep. Can you talk a little bit about burnout itself and how it affects lawyers. And I guess I just want to ask if you've experienced that personally, if you're willing to share any details on that. Sure. Well, let's kind of start with the general concept of burnout, which generally I think is defined as um, either physical or emotional exhaustion that's brought on by um, years of stress, um, prolonged stress and frustration. And I think I saw a speaker coin it best, which is it's the inability to go on and you don't care. We've all probably reached points in our in our lives where we've, we've hit that wall and we felt like we can't go on, but we cared enough to actually go ahead and try to do something about it or we adjusted what we were doing to make, um, make things better. But with burnout, it's really, it's also the, the lack of motivation to go on and fix it. And so you know, there's a lot of resources out there in terms of identifying what some of the signs of burnout are. But of course, the common ones are simply poor performance, a lack of interest in what you're doing, perhaps self-isolating, um, increased accidents and mistakes in your work product, being cynical or irritable. Um, sometimes there's depression. There's often physical signs. It's a loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping. 
sleeping, kind of a chronic fatigue feeling, even can have high blood pressure at some point, um, more illnesses, headaches. So it really can be all encompassing, both affecting you mentally in terms of your you know, intellectual output, emotionally, as well as physically. Um, I, I would like to say that I hope I've never actually hit the point of burnout where I hit that magical point of not caring anymore, but certainly there have been times where I have found that the demands of, you know, meeting client deadlines, um, as well as trying to juggle needs of my children, getting them to their activities, making sure that they're performing well in school, um, all of those things um, take priority and Unfortunately, I have found myself where they have taken priority over caring for myself. So I, I, like I said, I'm not sure I reached the point of burnout, but I certainly have probably edged close to it. And that burnout can appear differently for each other. So when we talk about the complete burnout, and then there can be signs that, hey, you're heading towards complete burnout. And maybe that's a sign that the self-care ought to step up a little bit. I think that that whole, there's times when we can still power through it right? And then times when you just get to the point. And I can, I'm grateful to say I haven't ever hit that point where I can't power through it, but there's definitely been times where I'm trying to power through. So what are your thoughts on trying to prevent getting to that total burnout stage? So I think that it's probably um, a few different factors that you have to fold into it. Um, So the, probably the most important one is learning to set boundaries for yourself and realizing that it's okay to say no. I am a recovering people pleaser. Um, I have a very difficult difficult time saying no to people when they ask. There was one point in time in my career while I was doing all of the things that we've talked about, but also serving on a performing arts center board, a community foundation board. I was president of the uh, parent-teacher association at my children's school. I was a Girl Scout leader and I held multiple uh, leadership roles in the American Bar Association, as well as serving as president of the Association of Corporate Counsel for the chapter of Kentucky. I say all that to say, I probably wasn't doing a great job at any one of them because I was spread too thinly. And um, I recall one instance where I needed to get my daughter to her karate practice and it conflicted with when I had a board meeting and I asked the um, board chair if I could participate on the telephone instead of in person and they acceded to my you know, request and I sat in the parking lot listening to the board meeting while my daughter was inside doing karate and embarrassingly, I actually fell asleep during the board meeting and for me that was a huge wake up call that I was just exhausted and way too thinly spread. So when my term ended and it was time to be reappointed to the board, I thanked them and said I had it. It was a wonderful experience, but I really needed to let someone else step up and and take that position. And then I slowly started doing that with many other things. I started really evaluating how these things were contributing to my life and whether I was simply doing them to add something to my resume or whether I was doing them because they were actually helping me flourish as a person. And so um, I think setting the boundaries Asking for help is also a big deal. Um, I am a very independent person. I've had to learn to be, but I think I'm also naturally wired that way. But that is not always the healthiest way to address things. It's it's okay to ask for people to help, and it's okay to address that. Um, you know what? Maybe I can't do this. I really could use um, someone else's time or expertise. And unfortunately, I think lawyers in general are pretty bad about that because as a profession, we naturally attract people who 
like to be seen as independent, who are um, kind of, you know, natured in the good natured in the sense of we want to be able to project confidence and asking for help is sometimes viewed as a sign of weakness. And so I think we tend to shy away from that. But it's also, again, I think a really key thing. And that's really important. I want to go back just for a minute to your boundaries comment, Crystal, because one of the things that I, I think is that a lot of those activities that you identified could be activities that would help you flourish as a person if you weren't overloaded with the overall demands. And so I was just going to comment that one time I had given a presentation to college graduates saying, well, I just need a bigger plate. But the fact is that we only have a plate that's so big, so we have to make good choices about what we're going to put on that plate at a given time. And sometimes that does mean saying no to something that might help our career path or that we might appreciate in another time of life. Is that a fair way to couch that? I think that's that's very accurate. Um, you can't, I think I, as someone once wrote, you can have it all, you just can't have it all at the same time. And that's very true because all of those things that I described, I participated them in reasons that were personally fulfilling to me, but frankly, there just weren't enough hours in the day to do them all well. Right. And then I think you talk a little bit about time away from screens, which is hard for a lot of people, but particularly for us, I have to admit that on my way here, I left my phone on my desk and ran back to get it. Yeah. The time away from screens is important. Um, I practiced started practicing law in 2000, where we still actually wrote old school letters and a chain of communication would take, you know, anywhere from two, three, four days for the letters to be exchanged between two lawyers. We obviously don't work in that environment anymore. It's everything is, you know, if someone sends you an email, they start getting upset if you haven't responded within three or four hours, even though you might be in a meeting or a deposition or whatever. And so um, it's, it's not just the being on your phone for work-related things. It's the social media that can suck you in and have you scrolling for hours. It's, um, you know, Netflix or whatever it is. Um, But it's funny because I really don't watch television. And so people will have conversations about all the things they're watching. I'm like, well, I just had to make a judgment call in my life that that I don't have time for it. So I just, it's something I've eliminated. I say that's actually one of the things that I don't do a lot of either. And so when people talk about TV shows or if I'm somewhere where there's like a famous person from television or movie, I'm highly unlikely to recognize them. But that's, again, one of the decisions that you do make about what's important. Other people like watch TV and can really speak to it being a value for them. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. Financial advice is useless without empathy. At Foster Group, we want to hear your story, your goals, your worries about the future. Only then can we help you feel confident about all aspects of your financial life. Come experience how it feels to be truly cared for at Foster Group. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. I think you talk a little bit about active relaxing. Can you explain what that means? Um, What I mean by active relaxing is making sure that you have prioritized checking out. And, And 
to tie back to something you said, for everybody, that's going to be different. So for some people, that is sitting down and watching Netflix for three hours. That's not my idea of relaxing. For me, relaxing would be sitting and reading a book in a quiet place or sitting next to water, um, whether that's a river or an ocean or a lake, and just simply taking in the waves and the sounds. It could be working out at a gym. It, it's it's whatever ties to what makes you feel relaxed, um, but the key is to schedule time for it. So I just learned a long time ago that if I don't exercise at six in the morning, it does not happen for me. Or if it does, it's such a happenstance thing because by the time I complete my work day, get my children to their activities and then do dinner and homework and whatever else happens to need to be done that day, it was, you know, nine, 10 o'clock before I was sitting down and nobody feels like working out, or at least I didn't feel like working out at nine or 10. So I just simply had to make a choice that, okay, I go to bed early and I get up early and that's what I need to do to stay regulated. And I love that comment. I'm going to emphasize that a workout can be active relaxing because I think that sometimes people think relaxing. And I think, as you know, I teach yoga and mindfulness. And so Sometimes people think that means I need to pull out a mat and be still for an hour. And the chances I have in a day to have an hour to sit on a mat is very rare. So I do like a walking meditation or my relaxation might actually be a workout at the gym because I do. And I get that some people think that that's extremely stressful and they're the net, you know, want to do the Netflix thing. But it's important that that relaxing doesn't mean you have to be vegging on a beach and you can build it in through your day. Well, what are some other strategies, Crystal? Um, well, I would say one of the things that really has helped me is to, um, I implemented a system several years ago that I copied from a, a good friend and a mentor where at the beginning of each calendar year, I come up with goals in different areas of my life. Um, everything from financial, professional, personal, spiritual, physical, and I try to come up with three or four goals, but then I go one step beyond that and I actually write out the measurable thing that I'm going to do to achieve that goal. And they're written in my planner because I, I use Outlook, but I also carry an old school like black, you know, covered planner. And they're written in the back of my planner and I look at them every week and I also track my success in my planner as to whether I'm meeting particular ones at any at any time during the year. So I may choose to focus on certain things and then I actually am like counting them out. Um, and the reason this is a good strategy for me is I'm a type A organized person, but I found that when I when they're written down and I'm looking at them regularly, I'm more likely to actually achieve them so that by the end of the year, I'm not looking back going, well, I really wish I'd helped and gotten all these things done. Um, and then self-blaming for not completing them. And whereas for me, if I write them down, it gives them life and then I'm more likely to achieve them. So if you are looking at that and you're struggling to meet one of those, what's your strategy to address that? It's a great question, Mary. And I think the key for me is to look at it and say, is this really a priority or is this something that can get pushed to next year? Um, one of the things I have, I love to travel. That is my number one hobby passion. It's everything from big international trips to just a Sunday road trip to some corner of Kentucky that I haven't seen before. Um, but on it, I always make sure I'm planning, okay, I'm doing at least one vacation with my kids and I'm doing one with my sister and I'm very um, thoughtful about it. And I look at the calendar at the beginning of the year and I map up where I see those windows and pockets that those can actually happen. 
So doing things with those that you're passionate about, doing things you're passionate about with people that you can be your authentic self with. Exactly. So in the spring session that uh, your panel did at ABA Ripity that I thought was just phenomenal, the group spoke about the ethical rules in relation to burnout. Can you provide some thoughts on that? Yes. So someone who is in a burnout situation or on the brink of burnout um, likely is going to struggle to meet a few of the areas of the model rules. So, um, and I'm just going to reference the ABA model rules because the states have all adopted those in some form or fashion. Um, Model rule 1.1 concerning competence requires that a lawyer provide competent representation to a client, which requires legal knowledge, skill, thoughtfulness, and preparation reasonably necessary. If you're struggling with just concentrating and feeling motivated to get up during the day, um, it's, it's, you're going to struggle with meeting that one. Um, model rule 1.3 relates to diligence, and it requires lawyers act with reasonable diligence and promptness in representing a client. Again, if you're in a situation where you are trying to juggle too many things, it's going to become difficult to serve any one client exceptionally well and meet your diligence um, requirement. And so, again, this is something where people need to be mindful of, am I trying to do too much? Am I forgetting things? Um, And then lastly, model rule 1.14 concerning communication requires attorneys to keep clients reasonably informed um, about the progress and information on the matter that they're representing them on. And at first blush, that doesn't seem to relate directly to burnout, but I think it has a huge implication because um, keeping your client reasonably apprised of what's going on in their case and consulting with them to make sure that you're formulating the plan for whatever it is that you're doing with them Um, that gets to be more difficult. Again, if you have too many demands on your plate, um, you're less likely to make the right and enough communications with your clients. And and coincidentally, um, I know for Kentucky and Texas at a minimum, and I think Louisiana as well, because we we gave this uh, presentation with people who were in those jurisdictions, um, communication is the number one source of complaints to the bar associations for those states. And it's simply that clients feel left in the dark. That's a really common, and you might know I do like some professional licensing things. So this whole ethical rules and burnout has become even more, I think there's a higher level of awareness with the pandemic. It's been in a lot of professions, including the legal profession. There's been a lot of challenges in terms of various types of mental health issues. And I was talking to someone today who's an advocate in the medical profession on these issues and was just making the statement that sometimes the ethical rules get in the way of professionals getting assistance. And particularly some of the states don't necessarily have the resources. Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I'm not entirely sure about, you know, what resources are available in each state. I will say this much though. My perception is that Um, The lawyer assistance programs in most states are, number one, relatively well-developed, but number two, exceptionally helpful if the attorney is the one going in and asking for help. So in other words, it's a different scenario if, 
because of the burnout or other things, you have committed things that are problematic from either an ethics standpoint or frankly, a malpractice standpoint. And that's the source of um, the lawyer assistance program getting involved because basically it's mandated at that point by your licensing board. It's a completely different scenario if you go to the uh, lawyer assistance program and say, you know what? I'm struggling. I'm, I'm struggling either with a mental health issue or I'm worried that I'm developed a chemical dependency issue during the pandemic because I drank every day because that's what people did. Um, it's, I think that their, their approach to it is helpful and those resources are available. It's just a matter of recognizing that you're at risk and, and being able to, you know, it's kind of, it's a tough pill to swallow, but realize that, you know, you're vulnerable and the help is there and you should go get it. And back to a comment you made early on, which is learning to ask for help, which is not easy for a lot of professionals because we're used to being the helpers, right? And another topic that you've talked about a little bit, which I just thought in preparing for this podcast, actually I have to acknowledge that I took this to my own office and talked about the importance of time management skills as a way to remain effective and be able to end your day. Can you talk about some of the skills that help in this area? Yes. So time management skills are critical in trying to achieve balance and meet all of these competing demands. Uh, the strategy that I use is kind of a twofold one. Um, the first is that, again, my, my handy dandy planner has, um, I use it to not only keep track of meetings, but each day has a small block with um, a little list, one, two, three, and I keep two of them one for the three personal things I have to get done that day, and another one for the three professional things that have to get done that day. Now, obviously there's days where those lists are much longer, but those are my critical ones that at five o'clock, six o'clock, seven o'clock, whenever I'm wrapping up my day, I go back and look at and make sure that I did that. And part of the reason I've moved to that system is I still, of course, have my long, you know, two-page Word document, that's my to-do list, but it's very demoralizing when you look at that list every day and you like, it never seems to go down. It just, it's like, okay, I checked one thing off, but now I'm adding 12 more things to it. And I checked two things off today. And I, you know, so by having this smaller chunk system, it kind of, it, it works better for me. It gives me a boost of confidence that, okay, I tackled those things that were important to me. Um, and then you know, you and I had chatted a little bit in preparation for this about routines and, uh, you know, people are wired differently on how receptive they are to routines, but to me, routines are really helpful. One thing I love about the American Bar Association section that I'm active in is they have a predictable schedule on when they do things. And so you kind of know, okay, I'm just going to put this on my calendar and this is when this is due. And this is when I've got to be prepared for this. Um, because again, it just helps you that when you've got those pockets of time where you can fit something in, you can better prepare for that stuff. I think that's a really important point. I hadn't really thought about that with reference to the ABA and most of the groups I'm in do have some kind of regular schedule in terms of that. And I know that I personally worked with a coach several years ago on organization and we created the spots in my calendar for six months out where I would have meetings and those were my meeting slots and we always have two emergency slots, but once those slots were filled, I was fully booked and I couldn't take on anything more, which also helped a lot to do the calendar organization. I was going to comment on that list of your three priorities. When we went remote during the pandemic, we started having everybody in the office create a daily work plan 
and told them that they could list no more than five things. And it was interesting how many times I would still get a list of 10. And I'm going, that's not physically possible. And so we'd send those back and we have continued that practice from an organizational perspective as a firm. And I think that that's helped a lot of people with time management. Is some of us, like I'm betting from listening to you, you're super organized with the planner and I'm super organized, but not everybody is. And if they can just develop those skill sets, I think it makes a big difference in being able to manage the day. So how can organizational leaders help? I think that that's a really important issue. Yeah, excellent question, Mary. So leaders need to lead wellness. Uh, They need to model it. And there's a few different strategies that I think work well, depending on the organization. I am blessed that I work for a company where our uh, C-suite, which I'm included in, we all recognize the value of taking time off. And when someone does, we really do try to not communicate with them while they're on vacation or taking that needed time. If we know someone's off for the week, we do everything we can to honor that and to kind of take everything off their plate for them so that they can actually recharge their batteries while they're gone. Um, You know, larger organizations that have a lot of resources certainly can look at making wellness offerings, whether that's, you know, subsidizing gym memberships. Um, My law firm in Minneapolis, we actually had a nap room. Um, It was a dark room with a recliner in it and a little lamp. And I'll say that when I was pregnant with my daughters, I went and used it a few times. I was exhausted at three in the afternoon and knew I needed to power through a few more hours. And I would just go and take a 30 minute nap. And it was amazing how much better I felt. Um, But I think the, the change needs to be that we first of all, talk about this, but then second, make sure that any stigma is taken away, that we recognize that wellness is a legitimate topic. It is necessary. We all have to learn to put on our own proverbial oxygen mask before we can really assist others um, because otherwise people will get burned out. And then that's not a help to the organization because then they need, then they're in the position of, first of all, losing someone valuable, but second, then having to go out and recruit, train, and then retain someone else. So do you have any particular self-care and wellness tips you'd like to add? Well, I think beyond what we've already discussed today, I I, I want to just circle back to this concept of it's okay to say no. Um, And for some people, that's really difficult. For me, I almost had to do a bridge of starting out instead of just saying no, I'd say, you know what? Let me think about that and get back to you in 24 hours, because that way I could avoid the immediacy of having to make the decision. And I could figure out whether this was something that was really valuable to me and what I want. And did I actually have time to do it? Um, And I, it's funny, I'm actually putting together a panel series discussion for something for the American Bar Association right now. And I've asked several people to participate in it. And I had several people say no, and they were smart. They said, you know what? My plate's already really full. This is going to be an amazing program, but I don't have time. And I think someone else might. And I was proud of these people. Frankly, I was like, good for you. I'm glad you said no to me. It's made me a little, have to work a little harder to go find other people, but I I really respected it. Um, And I think my response to them was something along those lines. And hopefully that affirmed for them that 
that it's okay to say no, and you're not going to be immediately shut out and lose all future opportunities. Cause of course I would, you know, immediately work with any one of these people again. I, and I love talking about the word no. And somebody had said recently to me, and it's become one of my favorite phrases is that no can be a one word sentence. You can say no without adding a bunch of apologies and, you know, reasons why you can't do it. You can just say no, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Crystal, do you have any last thoughts today? No, thank you so much for allowing me to participate and talk about this really important topic. I really appreciate you joining me today. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Carson Private Client, and Foster Group. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.